Welcome to the U.S.-China Dialogue Podcast from Georgetown University. This podcast series explores diplomacy and dialogue between China and the United States during the four decades since normalization of relations in 1979. We'll hear from former ambassadors, cabinet secretaries, and White House advisors who will share how they shaped the course of the most complex relationship in international diplomacy today. I'm your host, James Green. Today on the podcast, we talk with Todd Stern. The basic question facing all international relations theorists and practitioners is, how do you get a country to do something for you? Most countries only do things that their leaders perceive are in the country's interests. These are sovereign nations, after all, even if many capitals around the world want or need to have close relations with Washington. On the margins, maybe a foreign government can tweak a domestic or international policy, but big diplomatic breakthroughs happen when the key actors recognize their interests converge. Nixon's historic visit to Beijing in 1972 was the public manifestation of a change in U.S. and Chinese policies, recognizing that cooperating together against the Soviet Union was in both nations' interests, that working together was better than being apart. Fast forward several decades. In 2008, part of Barack Obama's successful campaign for president was to acknowledge the threat from climate change and, once in office, to implement domestic and international policies to stem global warming. But by then, China had already surpassed the United States as the world's largest emitter of greenhouse gases that are warming the earth. For that reason, any international climate deal would have to include China in a meaningful way, that is, with real commitments on CO2 emissions. And after several years of arduous negotiations, in 2015, global leaders gathered in Paris to ink an international climate accord. The U.S., EU, China, were all there. Here's President Obama then. Nearly 200 nations have assembled here this week. A declaration that for all the challenges we face, the growing threat of climate change could define the contours of this century more dramatically than any other. And what should give us hope that this is a turning point? That this is the moment we finally determined we would save our planet. The U.S. Special Envoy for Climate Change during that time was Todd Stern. In our conversation, Stern talks about his pivotal trip to China with Secretary of State Hillary Clinton in early 2009, about how the White House relentlessly pushed progress on climate change at senior levels, and about how his Chinese counterpart, Xi Jinhua, helped shift Chinese climate change policies. Since Deng Xiaoping's market-friendly reform and opening efforts in the 1970s, Chinese officials have largely blamed wealthy countries for the problems of environmental degradation and climate change. This episode, then, is the story of how planning, persistence, and high-level nudging can get a foreign power to do what's in Washington's interest and its own interest. And now, Special Envoy Todd Stern on China and climate change. Todd Stern, thanks so much for joining us. Great to see you here. Uh, I wonder if I could just ask, before we get to your time in the State Department and working with the Chinese government, if I could just ask at a personal level, when was the first time that you went to China? Was it while you were with the State Department or was it before that? Oh, the very first time I went? No. um, It was late in the Clinton administration. And uh, I had been in the White House for six and a half years with President Clinton. And the last year and a half, I went over to Treasury to be uh, Larry Summers' uh, counselor, just when Larry was starting. Bob Rubin still had a couple weeks left when I got over there. 
uh, counselor in the sense of his uh, sort of senior political advisor, not lawyer. And um, there was a big issue uh, that was going on in, um, I'm trying to think if it was 99 or 2000, but in any event, one of those two years, um, having to do with uh, China's uh, joining the WTO. And uh, Larry was interested in uh, going to uh, to talk to the Chinese about that a bit. The USTR had the lead, but you know Larry's the Secretary of Treasury, so he had his uh, his own interests. And so you know we got to Beijing. I have just the vaguest recollection of what Beijing looked like, which is nothing like what it what it is now. We were in some hotel. It was not a very swanky. I don't know if they had swanky hotels, and it was not at all swanky then. And we were there for a bit and then flew on a Chinese military plane to, uh, I, didn't, I couldn't even That's right. told you yep. the, the, the place, Longzhou. Mm-hmm. Longzhou. Mm-hmm. Um, In Gansu province. And, uh, and, uh, and met with, uh, and Larry met with Zhu Rongji, and, um, and we had, it was, I remember it was a very interesting ride from the uh, landing place to where Zhurongji actually was. It was a fairly long ride, I'd say an hour at least, uh, and past some very primitive houses, past caves, which I don't think were still being used. But um, So it was an interesting little glimpse into some part of, I guess, what sort of north-central mm-hmm. China? That's right. Kind of no, almost northwest China. Northwest, yeah. yeah. And um, so that was the first time, and then we, you know, we went back. Uh, I think we were, I think we left for the U.S. the next day. I mean, it was it was basically a one day trip. It, it was wow, it's fascinating. Yeah, I went out there a week beforehand to set up that meeting, yeah. uh, and Zhongji <laughs> was there, and so the Chinese agreed. After we bombed the Chinese embassy mistakenly in Belgrade, they cut off all contact, if you recall, and that was the meeting that kind of restarted it. Zhongji wanted to talk to Secretary Summers, and so. so so that was the first trip, and I it was. The only trip I'd had before um, before going there with Secretary Clinton in February of 2000. And what was your impression? I mean, it was a short one, and you were getting ready for meetings and understanding you didn't have a lot of time to wander around. Yeah. Uh, did you have any other impressions, either in terms of climate, uh, level development, the air quality, those sorts of things? Anything stick well, out of you? Well, um, I mean, it was enormously more... Developed again. I don't have even that clear recollection of what it was like, except that, like the the the, the just the whole skyline was just it, it didn't exist as I recall um, uh, back in in '99. But um, so it, it was it was huge. It was um, it had uh, it was very interesting. It had, and I still sort of think this about uh, Beijing. I'm sure there's other places in China where this is not true, and there's even pockets of Beijing where this is not true. But to my eye, it had absolutely no charm. It was large. It had these huge ring roads. It had these huge buildings. Um, you didn't really. There weren't places. Again, maybe in little pockets where you would just sort of wander around little streets and find shops. You had like shopping malls. You know, it, it was just. The whole style of it was uh, was interesting, but not, you know, for somebody whose you know favorite cities are you know London and Paris and Rome and Barcelona. I mean, it's like a very different deal. Uh, and the pollution was, uh, you know, uh, terrible. Uh, and I, I mean, I was in China every year during during my tenure. And um, I mean, I have pictures outside of my hotel where you almost can't see across the street. 
Uh, and this is you're talking about in the Obama administration later the Obama, on. Yeah, eight yes, years in later. the Obama mm-hmm. administration, right? Um, and uh, uh, so that, I mean, that just sort of as a as a as a physical impression, um, I you know I had a very positive impression of uh, not so much on the the Clinton trip because I didn't really start having my own meetings at, uh, at that time, but um, but as as but even a bit then, watching the, the the senior leadership who we met with, and then also with my own counterparts, um, a great deal of uh, of kind of intellectual capacity and ability. Um, people very smart and people very tactical and strategic, and um, and uh, you know uh, so impressive in that you know in that sense. Um, you know, with uh, Secretary Clinton, I remember the first meeting was at uh, Dao Yutai with uh, Dai Bing Guo, and you know, it was all quite interesting. And she had, uh, I mean, she took me for a reason. It was her first trip. So this and is 2009? This is 2009 in February. She was breaking the tradition of Secretaries of State going to Europe first. And so or Latin was, America. Yeah. Right. Or, oh. Okay, yeah. Latin America. But, but this was to signal something of a pivot to Asia. And... Uh, so we went to uh, Japan, China, South Korea, and uh, Indonesia, and um, uh, and she had an agenda. You know, in each place she talked about. I think she had three um, priorities, uh, and one of them was was climate change. Um, you know, one of them was uh, particularly with China was sort of hot spots, North Korea, and things like that. But um, and she, you know, how these things are very. I mean, I. This was my first trip, so I didn't even have experience of this. But but this stuff is very protocol conscious, like where you are in the line, where you are in the, you know, how how close you are to the armchair where the principles are. So all of these things kind of matter, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and they and they and very, they're very well scripted. Yeah, it's not they're scripted goosey-goosey. completely yeah. scripted. It's not like go find a seat. You go find the seat you're assigned, and um, and so so she had me quite high up in the protocol chain, I think quite, not just because she was trying to be nice to me, but, uh, uh, or, or even at all for that reason, but because th- there was a message to be sent, uh, which was very, was actually consequential and, uh, and useful. And uh, the Chinese, um, you know, in a way which is completely consistent with just, you know, kind of being smart and careful and doing your job well, uh, they really want to suss out who the guy is, who's the right guy or or woman, who's the right person for them to be dealing with, who's the person with authority? Because titles are titles, and you know they, they're hell. They're, they've been special envoys at the State Department, still are, who are relatively mid level. I was basically our climate minister, right? That's that that was the position that I had been um, picked for, and so the Chinese needed to see that. And they were, in, they were in fact in the early days kind of asking, right, is Stern the right guy? Is he speaking with authority or is somebody gonna, gonna overrule him? Could you just describe, I, I wanna step back a little bit and have you just talk about a strategy that the administration had coming in on what to do about climate change. But since you brought up that first trip, I was working in policy planning at the time and my transition memo that I wrote was why the new Secretary of State, this is before the election, yeah. the new Secretary of State should visit <clears throat> Asia 
whoever he or she is as yeah. a first visit for the reasons that you just laid out. Right. That traditionally the Secretary of State has gone to Europe or Latin America and, and no one had been to Asia. And so uh, super excited to then have that actually be the decision of the of the new team and have her go there. So could you just step back and sure. just talk a little bit about how you got to the State Department in that job uh, and oh, what sure. you were asked to do and maybe even one a little bit further as well. Just talk about what the <coughs> Obama administration's policy was towards climate change and how you were kind of part of that. Sure. Well, I mean, I got to the, you know, I, 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 uh, I'd swerved into, I'm a lawyer by training. I, I was interested in politics. I sort of swerved into politics back in the late 80s in a presidential campaign. Uh, and then, uh, you know, stayed uh, active and engaged and worked for my summer vacation in 1992 in Little Rock for Clinton and worked on his debate prep team and you know, did various uh, uh, transition memos and whatnot in any event. And I had gotten to know John Podesta quite well. And, and so were you working on, sorry, economic or? Uh, you know, I was a real generalist. Uh-huh. And I, by the way, by the way, I had, uh, yes, a generalist on policy. And I did not have any particular background in environmental stuff for climate change ever, and, you know, until uh, I was tabbed to help in the Clinton, during the Clinton administration. But... So, I mean, I got into the, I, I got to know John Clinton one. I went to the White House as uh, John Podesta's deputy. He was the staff secretary. And then I moved up to be the staff secretary when John left after a couple of years. And as I said earlier, I ended up in the last year and a half going to, to Treasury. I got pulled into climate change. Uh, both John and I, from that staff secretary um, platform, were sometimes asked to do kind of special assignments outside the four corners of the job, uh, which ranged from anything, anything from dealing with um, problems like Whitewater or the travel office to dealing with confirmation hearings that were hard or substantive things. So I, I was asked in '97 to jump in and help on climate change as the administration was preparing for Kyoto. And that's how I got into it. And after Kyoto, they asked me to kind of be the point person in the White House, you know, administration-wide. Um, and I did that for another year. So basically spent a year and a half, almost two years, doing climate and then went to Treasury. So I, so I had that climate background. Could you just, on, while you mentioned Kyoto, could you just set the table on what Kyoto is and was and sure. what, well, what okay. you were doing? Sure. Well, okay. So, so um, to give you two seconds of history, the, the Granddaddy Treaty for Climate Change is the 1992 Framework Convention on Climate Change. It didn't lay out very specific, um, really did not lay out specific obligations, but it laid out a, a framework, goals, generally what countries ought to be doing, but not, not more specific than that. It was uh, agreed to under uh, President Bush. It was uh, it was Senate uh, um, approved. I either unanimously or by a voice vote. There was really no opposition. Uh, that was '92. Um, uh, parties pretty quickly after that decided that there needed to be more specificity if we were actually going to you know make progress on climate change. That gave rise to a mandate in '95 to negotiate what became Kyoto. Uh, Kyoto in 97 uh, was notable for uh, having countries take on specific targets by a specific time period and a whole set of pretty rigorous 
uh, rules and procedures for reporting and compliance and all sorts of things, but all of that only for developed countries. The framework convention had s basically split the, the countries of the world into you know developed and developing. Um, there was a more technical term, but that's basically what it what it amounted to. So, uh, so all of that Kyoto stuff was for developed only, and there was no uh, there was no limit put on that. Uh, on that uh, division. In other words, there was no, there was nothing built into Kyoto that said, you know, in X year, then, you know, the more advanced developing you countries get would to graduate. Start, yeah, yeah. W either that you would graduate mm -hmm. it to, into the developed level or that you would start taking on your own um, commitments. That of might some, be a little bit lesser, sort. but they'd be yeah, some exactly. sort of obligations. I mean, as an example of a different uh, agreement where that happened, the Montreal Protocol. Um, to control uh, chemicals that was, were, uh, were creating a hole in the ozone layer, uh, set forth a set of obligations for developed countries, and more or less the same, some differences, but, but quite similar obligations for developing that started 10 years later, right? So there was a 10-year grace period, mm -hmm. and some differences in addition to that, but, but sort of like that. And there was absolutely nothing that that sort of time limited this complete firewall between the two groups of countries. So that was Kyoto. Um, significantly for that reason, not only, but significantly for that reason, it was dead on arrival in the United States. It was the kind of uh, international agreement that required Senate confirmation, Senate approval, uh, you know, under the advice and consent clause. Some do, some don't. That one did, and it was dead. Um, and uh, <coughs> President Bush, George W. Bush, uh, within the first three months of his administration, uh, sort of officially withdrew the U.S. from the Kyoto process. So, so under the Clinton administration, the agreement was reached in '97. It, and it was reached in '97. Uh, there was there were follow-on things that had to be done within the international negotiations to get it finished. And that actually didn't happen for a, you know about another five years or so. They kept working on that, but uh, but um, but even though you had you know Clinton and Gore, so both super committed to climate change, there was there was there was just was no traction, and, even and among Democrats. And it was you're saying at that time the politics just wasn't there. It wasn't a kind of Congress administration push and pull on a political level. It was really on the substance of the agreement that there was objections mostly in Congress. Or was it a mix of, of kind of politics no, and no, policy? No, you, no. You, I would say it was very heavily on politics, right? I mean, there were, there were two issues. You, even if you hadn't had that uh, particular developed developing country and particular, particular China <laughs> problem, because China was always like the, the, the developing country that caused the most angina in the U.S. Congress, um, you still had a lot of opposition like tons of opposition to the whole idea of doing, you know, a climate agreement. And there was a famous uh, resolution by Senators Byrd and Hagel uh, that, um, that basically said it was done in the summer of 97, maybe six months, five, six months before Kyoto, basically saying thou shalt not enter into a Kyoto agreement that, uh, that A, would hurt the U.S. economy, which they vociferously argued it would, or B, uh, fail to include all the countries. 
So we certainly violated B, <laughs> uh, and um, and you know the. There was debate about the economic impacts, but but so there was a lot of opposition, and that and and there that there really was a difference between Democrats and Republicans. Democrats fundamentally supported action on climate, mm-hmm. uh, but that and 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 it, you know it's quite possible that, that in fact likely the Democrats would have uh, would if if you had a if you had sixty seven Democratic votes in the Senate. You might not. You might well have been able to get that done, even given that split between developed and developing. But it's also true that that was very hard for Democrats to defend. Okay. So thank you. That's very helpful. So then um, you were brought in. You had worked on the Obama campaign, or you had worked on Hillary Clinton's campaign. I had. So I. Um, so in the in the period after the Clinton administration, I. Uh, it was it joined a law firm. I was a partner in a law firm in uh, in Washington, and I was also a fellow. <clears throat> not right, not at the very beginning, but but uh, after a little while, I became a fellow at the Center for American Progress that my old colleague John Podesta had started. And uh, and so I I wrote a few articles on climate change. I worked on a couple of long reports, you know, for CAP. So I kind of kept my hand in on uh, on climate during that. Period, particularly probably in the 2004 to eight or so period, um, and uh, and countries at a certain point after the Kyoto effort finally got finished in the early 2000s, uh, it didn't take too long for countries to figure out that it really wasn't a sustainable. Um, Platform because you had it basically was covering about twenty five percent of emissions. And I, these are just stepping back to the very basic science emissions. Uh, these uh, are greenhouse gas emissions, and mostly mo- mostly carbon dioxide um, caused mostly by burning fossil fuels, also that, burning al- also cutting down forests and things like that. But but overwhelmingly um, burning fossil fuels to run economies. And um, so in in two thousand seven countries. Uh, uh, so countries meet every so the the over the the overarching treaty is UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. That's also the name for the body. So the the UN body of all the countries in the UN, 195 countries or so, that deal with climate change is also called the UNFCCC. It meets uh, in at a at a ministerial level once a year. You know, basically December or sometimes November, but toward the ends of every year. There is a so-called COP for Conference of the Parties, and each one has a number. <laughs> and uh, Kyoto was COP three. This this whole process really started in '95. And uh, so, at the COP in 2007 in Bali, it was decided that that countries would try to negotiate a new agreement that, uh, in effect, I mean, they didn't say it like this, but that's what was going on. That the U.S. would get in, and that developing countries would. Be in for real, not just would have some obligations. Yeah, or would would have some expectations, mm-hmm. whatever mm-hmm. would 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 be would be expected and uh, and uh, committed to taking action as well. So um, so and that produced a mandate which was designed to then in, in turn produce an agreement in two thousand nine at the end of two thousand nine. So when we got in, you know, when the Obama administration started in late January of two thousand nine. We were sort of, we, you know, we were getting in in midstream. I mean, the, the, the negotiation had been kicked off 
uh, you know, 14 months earlier, and there were 10 months to go, basically. And so then you were brought in, and so yeah, so I had, so I, uh, I um, uh, had been uh, not very active in the campaign, but a little bit active early on for uh, in the prime during the primaries for uh, Hillary Clinton. I mean, I, you know, I'm. Uh, I'm, I'm a Chicago guy. We believe in loyalty, and <laughs> so I, you know the Clintons. The Clintons gave me my chance in the White House, so I, I was supportive of her. I didn't do that much, but I probably I don't know three, four, five times uh, did surrogate, um, you know, uh, debates or sessions uh, on her behalf, and you know I did a bit. Uh, when I always liked Obama, though I have to say, and when when he came out on top, then uh, I was quite supportive of him. And and uh, my old uh, friend and mentor John Podesta was uh, asked by Obama to run the transition, and John asked me to to be his deputy in running the transition. So I um, I basically at a certain point, starting in the fall, was pretty much spending all my time um, on transition. Uh, work, which was, you know, sometimes personnel, sometimes troubleshooting, but I also worked on the policy side of uh, of the climate stuff, uh, and um, and you know, the various powers that be decided to ask me to to be, uh, and I, I mean, I knew her all the way back to '93, so um, uh, they asked me to be the uh, her special envoy. Um, Somewhere along the line, she had decided that she wanted to structure the things things that way. So I came in uh, with her at that at that point. And the idea of creating a special envoy just to go back to the bureaucratics was that the person would focus solely on climate change and would yes, give them and, that and, yeah, and specialization. Yes, yeah, so so Secretary Clinton set up, uh, you know, hired a few special envoys: uh, Dick Holbrook on uh, Afghanistan, Pakistan, uh, Dennis Ross on Iran. Forget somebody for uh, North Korea um, and uh, Bosworth, maybe. Well, that was later. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. I don't remember for sure now. But um, and I never actually talked to her about this. But the way I read it was that uh, maybe to some extent, so there was one person f- focusing on it. But I think also to not have th- that person go through confirmation because. It was very time sensitive, right? We had ten months to go till the thing that the world thought was going to be a huge, big new treaty, and um, I didn't think that, but the world thought that, uh, and <clears throat> uh, so we really didn't have any time to lose. So, and in different ways, there was no time to lose, you know, on FPAC and you know, and Iran and so North forth. Korea, so, sure. yeah. So I think that that she picked a few people at you know at a quite senior level at a level that certainly as senior as somebody who would be confirmed but but that didn't need to be confirmed and so then you went on that first trip to China from yeah. what you recall uh, I honestly I was working policy planning and I don't recall the messaging at a level other than these are important issues for the incoming administration was there any other kind of message to that at that moment that you recall was being sent to the Chinese other than climate change is important, or did you, we have specific things No, I think, um, so it turned out just by coincidence that my counterpart, Xi uh, Jinping, um, who was the vice, at that point, the vice chairman of the um, NDRC, the National Development and Reform Commission, arguably the most powerful agency in China. Former uh, the, planning commission. From yes, the, mm-hmm. the, the agency that, that uh, does the five-year plans and, 
and so forth. So big, powerful agency. He was vice chairman, uh, and he uh, had the climate lead. He actually did domestic and international. But he was not, I think he wasn't in the country, but he, in any way he was not available when I went there with Secretary Clinton. So I didn't really start my own meetings um, during on that trip. I, you know, sh she had wanted to do, and I encouraged it, uh, a climate event in China. She spoke, and I in introduced her at a at a sort of efficient power plant. But uh, so no, the the time it wasn't all that much later. Uh, uh, Shia came to Washington in the middle of March. Uh, and that's and sorry, did you know Xi Jinping beforehand no, from your work? So no. this was your really first interaction when yeah, he comes in March. Right, right. Is your first G get yes, to know you? That's right. And so he came as a kind of follow-on to her trip, or he was doing other things. Oh, I think he came to see me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, my guess is he would have come whether she made that trip or not, mm -hmm. because he. I mean, I'm sure from his perspective, he needed to meet the new guy and, you know, who was like, what was the U.S. going to be doing now? What was going on with the U.S.? Okay. So um, so that was the time when I started to talk to the Chinese about climate change in any, in any kind of more concrete way other than this is a big issue. We care about it. The U.S. is committed. Obama's committed. I'm committed. It's a big – it's a big – it's going to be a focus of our foreign policy. And, like, from my point of view – that's all that needed to be done. I mean, that sent, and that sent a message that the Chinese heard. Mm -hmm. Right. And so then Xi Jinping comes here in March. Is yeah. anything you remember from that meeting on how did it go? Was he, he's a very uh, larger than life person in some ways. Yeah. Uh, but how did, how was that first interaction, if uh, you recall? It was, no, I think it was very good, actually. Um, I mean, we got to be very good friends. Uh, and, um, and I liked him right away. I mean, we we you know there was substance in the meeting, uh, but the relationship building part of it was actually more important. Um, we also, I'm pretty sure we had dinner. I'm, I'm just about. I am. I am sure. I just don't remember exactly where we went, but we also had a dinner. Um, and uh, he doesn't speak English really. I mean, maybe a tiny bit, but he always has a translator and. Uh, <coughs> So, uh, no, I, I think we, you know, he is a, he's a, he's a real personality. Um, he's not a, uh, a, he's not like a gray person. <laughs> um, he's, 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 uh, very, uh, expressive, uh, very, um, you know, he gestures, he, you know, he smiles. He laughs. He yells. I mean, he does. You know, he. He's a human. Yeah. yeah he's he's uh, and he's he. I, I think he's not as big as he's sort of. He presents large, like as he's got a kind of big, round, expressive face, and uh, and um, I, you know, I think he wanted to know early on what we expected and what we even what we expected of China, and so we we didn't. We started that conversation. That didn't go th that deep because, again, I had just gotten there. And, and uh, uh, but I know that I did say to him uh, because it was, it was something. I mean, if you sort of drop back for one second, China and the U.S. were historic antagonists on climate change. Right? China's the biggest develop developing country. The U.S. The biggest developed, and the U.S. more than anybody else. Uh, you know, even well before I was there, pushed back against this kind of firewall. Didn't like the, didn't like it very much. Accepted it, um, 
and I won't comment on the decision to accept it, but I accepted it back in uh, in 95 before my time. But um, that was the sort of the history of the U.S. and China. And of course, the U.S. and China uh, kind of forever and certainly in 2009 and really all the way through the administration just had a ton of issues that they were conflictual about, right? I mean, it was there were security issues. There was South South China Sea. There was there's human rights and the Dalai Lama. There was currency manipulation and forced uh, disgorgement of uh, of intellectual property, and on and on and on and on. And uh, and that and those things were true all the way back in 2009. And and I very much had a view, and I that I wanted to to present to him the notion that that climate change, even though we were historically antagonistic on this issue too, we have to work together on this, and this could be a, a kind of positive pillar in our in our bilateral relationship. So good, good on this, you know, important with respect to climate change for us and the world, but also good for us as a bilateral ways, matter. Uh, as a bilateral matter, and I started to kind of try to sell that, and he was pretty open to that, and you know, I. I I uh, very much noted in the, if you fast forward uh, uh, almost seven years to the bilateral meeting between Obama and, and uh, Xi on the first day of the Paris meeting, uh, President Xi said something not too different from, from that, that this is, a, this is a positive aspect of our relationship. So you've been writing Xi Jinping's talking well, points, no, or he had but, absorbed no, them. But, <laughs> but I think, hardly, but I think over time, I think she, I don't know if he thought that was a good idea right away, but I mean, we, we, we kept kind of working on that. So that's what I remember from the first no, meeting. Well, so then I wanted to move to the, um, you had mentioned that the Copenhagen um, uh, leaders meeting was coming up and you guys had 10 months to prepare yeah, for it. Right. Uh, there was a fair amount of press at that time about this uh, unplanned meeting at the end in which President Obama kind of yeah. goes to speak to some of the other leaders of the developing world. Uh, Mike Froman had kind of talked about right. some of that right. when we spoke with him. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the preparation for the, you must have been incredibly busy, the preparation for the leaders meeting and then how China kind of played into that at Copenhagen? So, you know, there, there, there's a ton of preparation for Copenhagen all during the year, right? And so there's there's bilateral meetings. There's, you know, we started uh, a, um, sort of took a, a grouping that the Bush administration had put together sort of toward the end of the Bush administration, which they called the MEM, the Major Economies Meeting, <coughs> 17 develop, developing majors. <coughs> we rebranded it a little, a little bit because the Bush administration brand on climate wasn't particularly good. And um, um, but uh, but I had had a I had had an, a uh, a belief after my experience back under Clinton that you couldn't have, you know, kind of meaningful substantive, you couldn't do substantive business of the sort that you need to do to develop a 
positions just relying on the cops at the end of the year, which is a kind of a cacophony and a three-ring circus and all of that. A lot of players, a lot of countries. Yeah, and that, there, of and that th- there really needed to be a smaller grouping that could meet at a high level um, periodically to be able to, and just quietly and be able to talk. And I, I, I actually wrote an article about this, one of the articles I wrote during the period before Obama got elected. And, um, and so then, as it I'm sure not because of my article, but the Bush administration set something up. We took that. We took the countries basically, gave it a different name, and gave it a, really a mission to to facilitate the negotiations, sort of a secondary mission to see what clean energy collaboration there might be, but really focused on the negotiations. And so there was those. We actually had six of those meetings during the course of uh, of uh, 2000. Nine, including one at at, a, at the leaders level, um, and that was at generally at your level. You mentioned six. Was that at your level? Which for other countries was that a vice min- minister or a no, kind of minister, uh, a minister level? Yeah, no. I, I, I mean, it's 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 it, it sounds funny in the in the U.S. context, but I was genuinely seen as the minister. Mm-hmm. I mean, for for you know, ministers were my counterpart. There were you know there were other places where you know Brazil is another place where. There is an environment minister, but the person who really leads on climate, by and large, is effectively a sort of undersecretary at, uh, in their foreign ministry. Mm-hmm. India, for a while, was was uh, their minister was a uh, was somebody in the immediate office of uh, of their prime the minister. minister. So it just depends. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And sorry, just before you get to the leaders part of it, could you do you remember what the kind of U.S top two or three positions were going into Copenhagen, what we were looking for just in some kind yeah. of substantive way? Yeah. Um, well, so I'll give you uh, sort of two answers to that question. I mean, generally speaking, we were looking for, I mean, if you sort of step back and look at the U.S. posture, we wanted an agreement that was, uh, you know, as strong and effective as it could be. Um, we could not accept an agreement that was premised on the firewall, so it could not be Kyoto Redux. Developing and developed countries yeah, split. I mean, mm-hmm. there was going to be a developed and developing country split. That's mm-hmm. built into the framework convention, but that doesn't mean that um, that just developed do something and developing don't, or that developing developed countries make legally binding commitments to do X and developing agree voluntarily that they'll do Y if they feel like it. I mean, it couldn't be kind of badly asymmetrical. We, would, we expected that developed countries would sort of do more from the point of, not even do more, but do different things from the point of view of content because we were at a level of maturity economically that you could talk rationally about net reductions of our emissions. If our emissions are X, they should go to X minus Y. If you're a country that's growing 9 or 10% a year, you can't do that you know, without throwing your entire economy in, in, into an uproar. What you can do, though, is reduce as compared to what you are going to be. And that can be just as hard. So that's why I said it's not that we were going to do more, but we were going to do different. That was fine, but you couldn't have these kind of uh, blatant um, divides, and it, it, in some ways, it's maybe simplest to think about it as like legally binding, rigorous rules for us and not for them, that kind of thing. So, 
that's kind of the the general background on a backdrop on issues. I mean, there's always a bunch of issues in these negotiations. There's issues that have to do with the nature of the of the so-called mitigation targets, how countries, are, the, the reductions countries are going to make. There's issues having to do with transparency, how they're going to report on what they're doing and get reviewed. There's issues having to do with financial support, with something that's called adaptation, which is how poor countries in particular um, cope with climate change that you, can, you can't avoid. So there's a slew of issues. Uh, the issues that were of the, the kind of, that were most difficult going into to Kyoto all really revolved around the degree to which we and then others with us were trying to pull back from some of that sharp divide that I was telling you about. Uh, and in you know in that which and that came up in in different ways both in particular with respect to to mitigation and the transparency stuff and and so those were um, still aspects of those things were unresolved all the way up until the very final uh, dramatic meeting. Can you set the table? Can you kind of prepare us for how things were going? Well, and sure. Then, then so the so the the. Um, the Danes had been trying during the during the course of the fall to uh, to uh, work. The, the Danes had figured out correctly that there wasn't going to be an agreement of the kind people had been anticipating uh, with uh, legally binding commitments. Developing countries wouldn't accept legally binding, and we wouldn't accept if they didn't accept. So the Danes were. The Danes did some things wrong in terms of the uh, of the actual uh, management of the meeting and and certain things, I suppose, in the fall. But the Danes did some. The Danes were very, in many respects, very impressive in the in 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 the strategic way they thought about this in in the lead up. And they started to make a pivot, which Secretary Rasmussen, the Prime Minister Rasmussen. Um, kind of unveiled in the fall where they were talking about where we, we can't get the whole agreement done yet. So let's start with, in essence, a, uh, a, an agreement where uh, countries would politically commit rather than legally commit. So um, make strong, strong, meaningful commitments, but not legally binding commitments. As a start, because it's you know it's too serious to you know we can't wait. Let's get started, kind of thing. But that's really what was going on. So aspirational goals at a political. I think level. they would say more than aspirational, but real goals, but not just but just not, not legally, legally binding. binding. Yeah, and um, and that was because and they figured out that that there was no way to get us to do legally binding unless you were going to get China and the others to do it, and they couldn't get them to do it, and so you you had that conundrum and they didn't want to get locked out of anything so let's let's do let's agree on mitigation commitments let's agree on transparency let's agree on finance let's agree on all these things it's just, it's just going to be in a kind of political commitment document rather than a legally binding document and then we're going to resolve to continue working on a legally binding one and so the Danes had already started and, and the Danes had 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 held a couple of meetings with you know groups of countries uh, in the fall and the lead up, um, and <clears throat> on the second or third day of the COP, um, one of the developing countries never been uh, identified who did it, but um, leaked a 
da the Danish document that that they had prepared and circulated um, in you know a week or two before the cops started in a meeting of forty or fifty countries, and the whole place went haywire. Um, and it was you know it was seen. I mean this. There was a good deal of cynicism here because the, whoever leaked it had been at the meeting, <laughs> so it wasn't really such a surprise. But people, it was a little bit out of Casablanca. People were shocked, shocked that this had happened. But there were also lots of developing countries who didn't know anything about even those meetings, so they, they actually were very surprised. And the, and the tradition in the, in the, in the uh, climate negotiations is very much, quote, party-driven. So the notion that the that the Danes as a presidency would be drafting something mm -hmm. was just, uh, you know, was heretical, mm -hmm. and um, so it caused a huge uproar, and <clears throat> and a lot of the next you know number of days was was spent trying to put the thing back together. The Danes were trying for more than a week to pull together a kind of group of maybe thirty high-level developed and developing countries together. So kind of like what the U.S. had pulled together in the major economies? Yeah, but yes, but it would have been broader than that. It wouldn't have just been the majors. It would have been representatives from the and islands, so, from, the, from Africa. It Folks would have, been, it, it would have uh, touched uh, everybody. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But you can touch everybody with 40 people. Mm -hmm. And uh, But you, they couldn't, every time the meeting would be scheduled, um, Generally, the developing countries wouldn't show up, so they, they really couldn't get it together. On, uh, finally, on Thursday, the thing was supposed to end on Friday night. On Thursday night at 11 o'clock, uh, after a dinner that was hosted by the Queen, um, the Danes had gone around and invited you know, 30, 35 countries at the leader level to a meeting, which started that night at 11. Um, as a kind of last-ditch effort to salvage something, because it looked like there would be literally nothing. I mean, it looked like there would be nothing. Um, Hillary Clinton had arrived on Thursday morning with the agreement on the U.S. side that we would support the goal which had been, um, I think, first proposed by Gordon Brown in the U.K. and was very much the kind of cause celeb of uh, Melish from Ethiopia on behalf of developing countries to uh, mobilize $100 billion a year by 2020. So from private sources, public sources, but for, for developing countries. For mitigation or for? For both, mitigation and adaptation. And, and, <clears throat> and she announced that at press conference on uh, Thursday morning when she arrived. And that started to breathe life into what seemed like a fairly moribund process at that point because then, you know, this idea was around, but the U.S. hadn't been supporting it. And, you know, F Mike Froman and I were, had been discussing it and, you know, working on this, on, on, on that point for a while, but it, it got to the stage that the U.S. was ready to say yes. So the thing was breathing a little bit more on Thursday, but then Thursday night the meeting starts. It goes basically all night. Um, the leaders get led out by the, by the Danes at maybe three in the morning or so, um, with the instruction to be back at eight. And uh, those of us who weren't leaders stayed most of the night. Um, oh, stayed in the center all night, but stayed working most of the night. Um, and uh, the meeting resumed around eight or so. Obama arrived probably nine, ten, um, and uh, and then this this. This meeting in, in this conference room went, or this 
room in the center went on for for quite a while. It sort of stalled out at some point in the afternoon. Uh, the president wanted to, he had met with uh, Wen Jiabao earlier, but he wanted to meet with the Chinese again. The Chinese and the Indians, I think, were the only ones who did not send leaders. Um, when at least the only ones who didn't send leaders when there were leaders there to be sent. I think just about everybody else, it was literally the president or the prime minister. Uh, India sent their minister, and China, the Chinese sent a bureaucrat. Um, this is the meeting that you're saying. This is this is in the meeting in the in the in the center, and um, so the president was getting. I mean, I think everybody was getting pretty impatient, and and the president really wanted to get back together with the Chinese, and they, they were having a lot of trouble finding them. Um, <clears throat> we thought. We had, we had heard that the Indians, the Indian leader, um, uh, Singh, might have even left, you know, Copenhagen altogether. I don't know how, who heard or how it happened, but somebody heard that, um, that there was a meeting going on when Jabao was at such and such a conference room in a different part of the, <coughs> of the center. So the president, Hillary Clinton, me and Froman and, you know, five or six other people all start uh, moving over there. and. Um, and you know we get there completely unannounced. There's a million press cameras, everything. The the meeting is uh, leaders from China, India, South Africa, and Brazil, which had formed a little a little mini block called the Basic Countries. <coughs> and um, and the president walked in and said, you know, here I am, basically. <laughs> Can you make room for me? Uh, and so there was, uh, you know, there was much shock and uh, and you know bustling around to rearrange the seats. And then, you know, then began a meeting that went for forty-five minutes or an hour, which focused on two things really. One was to get language that that, that uh, would uh, would. Uh, provide for some form of international review of the reporting done by developing countries on what they were doing on their inventories um, of emissions and, and that kind of thing, as opposed to developing countries self-reporting full stop. Mm -hmm. And that's the only thing. And, and China had never agreed. Many of developing countries were fine with that, but um, but most importantly, China had never agreed to that. Um, and secondarily, that the commitments that countries make uh, had to be submit had to be quote internationalized. I mean, I say quote that's a word that we came up with during the MEF meeting. But not simply that you would put out a press release saying we're doing X, but that you're part of an international system, that you that you're submitting mm -hmm. your your uh, proposal to the UNFCCC. Chinese had not agreed to either of those things, and um, and by the end of the meeting, they agreed to both of those things. The w there was lots of back and forth, back and forth, back and forth on the words that would be used uh, to express what was going to happen for transparency, and uh, it ended up being that there would be international consultations and analysis of uh, of what the um, of a country's own report, <coughs> and uh, and that that was 
you know, that was the thing that, that broke the deadlock on the Copenhagen Accord, although there was still some more. So in this case, the personal intervention of the president having kind of face-to-face with the Chinese premier was the yes, uh, kind uh, of breakthrough absolutely. part. And he was there. Hillary Clinton was right next to him. And Froman and I were standing right behind them or sometimes off in the corner trying to find words. Scribbling with, down with, with the Chinese, yeah. But, but that, that was the thing which, um, which, uh, which got the Copenhagen Accord done. Of course, it still had to be adopted by the plenary, and it wasn't. It was the plenary kind of revolted. Again, remember, this is a cons- essential. It's not formally, but it's essentially a consensus process. So even though you have 195 countries, you can't really have anybody or at least not many bodies disagree. And you had enough that um, that it wasn't adopted. But it, at the end of the day, after much back and forth and wrangling and maneuvering, it was taken note of, which kept it alive. And w- that was actually very important. Um fascinating introduction to that that vignette. Could I move forward a couple more years to 2014? China is hosting APEC. And uh, there was a bilateral meeting between President Obama and then President Xi. And there were four different areas of agreement, and one of them was on climate. Could you talk a little bit about um, the, the run-up and how you use their kind of host year of APEC to push the, well, issues. sure. Um, I mean, the way this started is that uh, we'd had quite a good year with China in 2013. Um, Secretary Kerry had come on um, in the beginning of that year. Uh, he had wanted to uh, to um, kind of intensify. I, mean, I met with Xia constantly. We had a lot of uh, interaction um, uh, and um, I mean, he took me to his hometown. I took him to my hometown. You know, took him to a baseball game. Had him over for dinner to our house in Washington. I mean, we interacted a lot. Cubbies, or did you go to the Nationals? Cubs, so. Cubs, of course. Chicago guy. <laughs> um, so, but 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 Secretary Kerry, to his to his credit, wanted to kind of pick it up, and um, and uh, we we ended up under um, kind of uh, uh, his. Um, Leadership uh, starting a uh, U.S.-China uh, climate change working group to collaborate, sort of on specific area, that clean energy type uh, areas. Um, al- always with kind of the the uh, SNED, the Strategic and Economic Dialogue, which was usually June, July, as the action forcing event each year to announce here's some new things we've agreed to. That be- that became quite useful. Uh, the other thing that happened in 13 is that um, Obama and uh, President Obama and President Xi had their first meeting in Sunnylands, and uh, we negotiated. Uh, I mean, I started a negotiation with Xia um, when I was in Beijing, and then we continued it uh, for a couple of weeks um, by phone um, in the lead up to Sunnylands to negotiate something, uh, a, a short agreement on controlling. An, an important industrial gas called HFCs, hydrofluorocarbons, and uh, and to, and using the the uh, the um, mechanism of the Montreal Protocol to control those gases, which made sense because HFCs were a substance, a non-ozone depleting substance, devised as a substitute f- for an ozone depleting substance. It, it used in things like air conditioners. 
people originally didn't realize that HFCs were a really bad climate change agent, but they were. So, um, so we negotiated, and that turned out to be the single biggest deliverable of the Sunnylands meeting. And uh, and then there was still a follow-up uh, short agreement between the two of them in September on the margins of the G20. So it there had been a lot of positive stuff going on. And Secretary Kerry called me up to his office in January of, uh, of 2014 and basically said, okay, what are we going to do next? Right? Like, that was good. Thanks for your work. Yeah. What's, what's now, next? Now, now what? So I said, um, okay, let me think about that. And we got, we got, to get, got together with my team. And we kicked around a bunch of ideas. And somebody on my team um, said, why don't we try to have the two countries jointly announce their targets for Paris when the two leaders are going to be getting together in November for APEC, and uh, and Paris is taking place the subsequent year, the following year. year, yeah. And I, I was initially a little skeptical that the Chinese. Would, I, th- I liked the idea. I thought I was skeptical that they would want to do that because they just wasn't sure they'd want to walk down the aisle with the U.S. when they have a lot of their own developing country. G77 equities, but I did think it was interesting, um, and I thought they might think about it in a kind of broader context that would appeal. So, um, Kerry, uh, I accompanied Kerry to China to um, to uh, start talking about this in February. We talked to the White House, obviously, before we went, and uh, John Podesta's, again, my old mentor, was at the White House at that point to work on climate. Uh, the president had given a big climate change speech at Georgetown in June or July of 13, laying out a climate action plan, and John was brought in to kind of drive that interagency. <clears throat> anyway, I went with Kerry. I first broached this with Shia, um, uh, and uh, and then Kerry raised it with, you know. Xi Jinping and and all the leadership, uh, uh, the um, foreign minister and others that he met with, and the Chinese were open to it, and uh, it wasn't a done deal. But uh, and it was it was always understood that each country would have to be adequately comfortable with what the other one was proposing because you know you wouldn't want to walk down the aisle together, if right? you think that like if we thought the Chinese were laying an egg we wouldn't want Obama to be wrapping his arm around and, and vice versa so and it you know there was about nine months of negotiation over this and meetings and discussions and 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 back and forthing and um, and we managed to keep it quiet it never leaked that this was going on and uh so um, when they uh, when the announcement was made in uh, in uh, in November, it was uh, it was quite stunning, actually. Because um, no, as you said, no, none of this had leaked. The United knew. States and China were I working mean, on something like, substantive on climate change. There were a million press in China for the event, right? And. And again, this thing had been going on with a lot of people aware of it for nine months, and nothing had leaked. And so the press was completely shocked, which you know kind of gave it even more adrenaline. Um, and sorry, can you just describe what was what was announced? Yeah. Um, so the Chinese announced their target for um, for uh, Paris. Um, they had about a three or four part target. Um, 
that had to do with uh, reduce like the their kind of main metric was uh, reducing the energy intensity of their economy, but also they had a uh, a, a date for a um, uh, for when their emissions were going to peak and then start to come down. They had a target for the amount of non-fossil energy, the percentage of non-fossil energy in their uh, in their mix, and so forth. And we had uh, and we had a uh, a target that was um, based on uh, our what what we would reduce. Um, uh, against a twenty the two thousand five baseline by twenty twenty five. So our target was twenty six to twenty eight percent below two thousand five by twenty twenty five, which was a, quite a stretchy target for us. That was level of U.S. emissions. Is level that right? of U.S. emissions, and that was um, uh, there was tremendous amount of there was a tremendous amount amount of technical work to see what looked feasible, and then there was a lot of sort of political uh, debate and work about. Given that this is what looks feasible, where should we be, <laughs> and should we be even a little above that, and uh, et cetera? So, so that was a piece of it, and then um, there was a company kind of text that uh, where the two presidents talked about um, being committed to getting uh, the agreement in Paris done and being committed to working together to work out any obstacles to that happening. You know, we worked hard on it. We, you know. We Paris went all the way at some level, you know, two days before it was over. We were still, you know, wrestling with them. But but I think we knew and they knew, we both knew that we had to get this done. That, that was really serious. Uh, and so I guess just stepping way, way back and looking at all this time that you spent <laughs> with the Chinese and with all these other countries on climate are there uh, lessons to be learned on kind of what works in negotiating with Chinese counterparts or uh, with the Chinese government, or what doesn't? Well, <clears throat> it's a good question. I mean, i I think that I think that um, that uh, again the notion that. We have a lot of areas of uh, of difference and and friction, and that this, although is is uh, climate certainly not an easy issue, it was one that we could find adequate common ground on, and it could be, you know, as I said all the way back at the beginning, it, it actually could be a positive pillar, and it became that. Um, I think that we were, uh, I think both Shia and I all the way through were mindful of really trying, which, you know, you don't, you don't just ask the question and get the answer. You've got to like really kind drill of and drill, drill and, and drill and drill until <laughs> you see that you're really hitting, kind of hitting bedrock to understand what the other guy's red line really is and we just can't the Chinese are not going to go there or the Americans are not going to go there so what do we do to work within those parameters and you know it's a, it's you spend a lot of it's a talking it's sort of a talking game you spend a lot it's what diplomacy is you spend a lot of time kind of uh, trying to understand those things um, uh, I think 
it was enormously important that that there was engagement at the very top levels of our government from you know both the, both the president and the secretary of state and 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 others you know the secretary of energy had his own uh, role and EPA was important they they could see that this was an issue of of that kind of high priority uh, for us um, so and yeah I mean the other thing is that we were mindful about is that whatever the other uh, areas of friction were and are, and I mean, I think this is this is true now too. I mean, we don't have an administration, unfortunately, who that understands uh, or cares about climate change. But, but the the concerns that exist about China now go way beyond the Trump administration. I mean, if you sort of follow the, I mean, you're you're the Chinophile and I'm not, but I mean, the, but the but but if you follow the sort of Chinophile world on the Democratic or the Republican side, there's a lot of disillusionment and, and unhappiness with uh, a lot of Chinese conduct, and I I happen to think some of that's legitimate, but but we have no choice but to work with them on climate change, even if you weren't thinking about this as the pillar, right? I mean, that's one point, but we simply have no choice because climate change is a deadly serious issue. China is somewhere between 25 and 30 percent of global emissions by themselves, right? And even back in 2009, they were probably a little less than that, but not so much less than that. You know, with a at that point still rapidly rising trajectory, there's just no way to deal with this unless China is a serious part of it, and they won't be a fully serious part of it without without a U.S.-China relationship. So um, y- you've got to. Uh, so that's not what I learned from the negotiations with them, but that is a, a kind of uh, foundational principle that you've got to be aware of. You've got to find a way to work together on this. Todd Stern, thanks so much for sharing today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Special Envoy Todd Stern speaking with me from Washington, D.C. You've been listening to the U.S.-China Dialogue Podcast from Georgetown University. I'm your host, James Green.